Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. You're listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station, a show where we take an analytical look at how we can achieve peace, whether that be political peace, economic peace, societal peace, or perhaps the most important of them all, inner peace. As the character of King George III says in the musical Hamilton, oceans rise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And that was true in the past, and it's even true in our own lifetimes. We may well have seen this to be a you know, true fact. Powerful empires can and do crumble, and they can crumble to dust in the very short space of time. The same applies for regimes which exert excessive control over their populations. And for any of us who lived through the early 1990s, this notion is part of our living memory. Apartheid, the fall of the Iron Curtain, fall of communism, the Ceausescu's, Marcus's, those families or those regimes which at one time seemed impenetrable came to an end. Their influence waned and public opinion resulted in societal and political change. Sometimes that change was peaceful, sometimes it was violent. But the objective was also to improve the lives of the many rather than the ruling few. Sometimes regime change created a more peaceful society for all, and sometimes the legacy left was more complicated. Whatever the circumstances, it is clear that changing the status quo is never easy and the outcome is never guaranteed. When we look around the world today, we can see that there still remain some marginalized or oppressed communities who live their life existing without a voice. This could be, um, you know, the subsistence farmers in uh, parts of Africa suffering the impact of climate change while not contributing towards it at all. It could be one of the 70 million children unable to access education. It could be the displaced and the refugees seeking a stable home. The list goes on. But today we'll be looking through the female lens at women around the world who do not have a voice and do not have the freedom which many others in the world have. Joining me to discuss the issues today are Mrs. Shazia Bhatti, a solicitor and mother of two, and Mrs. Melissa Ahmadi, a teacher and mother of two. Welcome ladies, assalamu alaikum. Welcome Islam, peace be upon you. So if I could start off by asking, you know, we're talking about women specifically today and women in the world. Do you think women are marginalised? Is there any particular group that comes to mind? Yeah, I think there's there's no doubt really that women are marginalised throughout the world. I mean, you only need to look at the patterns across society. Even here in the UK, the domestic violence rates, as just one example, are very, very high. The existence of charities such as women's aid, etc., and access to opportunities generally in the in the working world especially with regards to senior roles and positions in the workplace but also in politics too um we can see how that directly impacts women often negatively i mean a recent report by the cipd which is a professional body for hr professionals claims that four in ten women have experienced sexual harassment at work and one in nine mothers have faced dismissal and the gender pay gap of course, remains over 17%, despite legal rules trying to prevent this from happening. So, of course, I mean, women at large, yes, are marginalised, but to speak on Muslim women, they are also at further disadvantage. And this is due to, for one, for one main reason, the high levels of Islamophobia, which is often made worse by, you know, stereotypes in the media and the often negative portrayals of Muslims as as one example, violent extremists or terrorists, and Muslim women in particular, as to be oppressed and in need of that liberty. And we can unpack this throughout the show, I think, but we know that, you know, for Muslim women ourselves, this of course isn't true. So we'll we'll come back to that <coughs> point, I think, in a little. I mean, I think to marginalise a group of people means to make them feel isolated and unimportant. And I think, you know, that that um understanding or that meaning of it and I think it's clear that women are marginalized and I think if we even take the example of secondary schools you know where there are co-education where there are both boys and girls in the school 
it's often the case that girls won't be outspoken to answer the questions because often the boys will be louder and take over the discussions and girls are kind of put down by it by their their male counterpart um when they try and get involved in the conversation and so you know that that that's a, a marginalization that starts from a very young age and i think mm -hmm. women of color you know are doubly disadvantaged as in european and north american countries and being a woman and of an ethnic minority often means having to work harder than others in your environment, you know, taking opportunities where they arise and knowing that things aren't just going to be handed to you and you have to go out and, and make your mark, as it were. You know, another another group of people who, who are marginalised are refugees and, and, and the women, the female refugees are, are in that situation and they would have come from a very unstable environment. And it isn't easy settling into a new country not knowing whether you're going to be allowed to remain there, not knowing the language, the new customs, the new cultures. And refugees have come from the most unstable environments where they may be struggling, you know, for their lives. And therefore it takes time for them to settle into their new environment. And, you know, when if they can understand the media and, and see that people don't want them there, um, then it's much easier to kind of become a shadow of yourself um and not go out into the world because you're scared of, of what you will face. You know, some will have never even been to schools or being educated. You know, they can't write, read and write in their own language, let alone even trying to learn a new language. And it, it must be just so hard um, for them. And, and, and that kind of causes the marginalisation as well when they're not allowed or they're not encouraged to integrate. I mean, you've mentioned quite a few different groups there and different women in different circumstances, both in the you know more affluent countries and in and the less prosperous. So, you know, what do you think is the root of the marginalisation? You've mentioned issues about Muslim women, for example. Are Muslim women particularly marginalised? You know, are they a different category to other women in the yeah, world? Yeah, I mean, we can look at this in, in various different ways. I mean, marginalisation in general can be interpreted in how perhaps how a government and politicians may interpret Islam, if we're talking about Muslims in particular. And how that law then directly affects women is up to the is at the behest of you know their their interpretation of that law. So in Muslim countries, um, you know here in the West, obviously Sharia law has a very negative connotation, um, but actually in actual fact, it just it's just the law of of the Holy Quran. We can unpack that further, but you've also got you know judgments external judgments and interpretations of islam by the media which can be grossly exaggerated and, and misinformed and then they mostly exist to or largely are reductive and can be very derogatory and critical of attitudes towards muslim women in particular and put, again perpetuates this idea that muslim women need liberating and they need freeing when in fact this isn't the case and I mean, when you look to international reactions as to what's happening in Iran at the moment, specifically, there's, there's this air of hypocrisy, in my opinion. You've got, you know, some political leaders are very keen to, you know, talk about the freeing and liberating uh, Muslim women from the headscarf. But when you look to places in the West, such as France, for example, being, being perhaps the most obvious one, um, the freedom to choose to wear one at all the headscarf has completely been taken away um, and that's enshrined in in French law so I think what underpins our discussion is all about freedom of choice and I think the 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 underlying tone and the thread that you know binds all these countries together Iran France and India to name just a few current examples of right now that girls and women have been stripped of their right to choose how to dress, whether they can wear one in their country, headscarf, or not. So this right of women to actually have autonomy over their own bodies and to choose how they decide to cover themselves, it's it's basically now a political tool and it's used for political bargaining in the media as well. So in the name of freedom, that right has been taken away for the Muslim women in France who have not long since had a burkini ban, which prevents many Muslim women who choose to cover their bodies from wearing modest swimwear on the beaches and in public swimming pools. So it, it takes not just the freedom to choose, but also, you know, participation in public life away. I mean, it seems so strange, doesn't it? It's, it, it, it you know, that, that we are being told we must be liberated or we are told we must be, a, you know, dressed in a particular way. And it, and it just seems 
strange that we aren't free to make those decisions in some countries. And and it's not just France. And I was on holiday with my family in Lebanon. And we, as ladies, were told we weren't allowed on the beach unless we were wearing a swimming costume. And you don't expect that from a country that is 60% Muslim. So those those women in those countries are marginalised, even though Islam is a, a majority in that country. And it just seems very strange for them and, and, and it's a very strange experience for us. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, young women, teenagers, as well as teachers, you know, working professionals being prevented from essentially wearing a headscarf as well as the example of, you know, this is French law. I actually can't believe that this is French law. As well as mothers who sort of want to accompany their children on school trips. Um, this is this is not allowed. Like, they can't go. So for, for balance, I mean, we should also say that, you know, French law also includes other religious symbols that are prohibited from... Over religious symbols, I should say, are prohibited in certain spheres in in France in, in the public space but the law clamps down particularly on Muslim women um, for which the headscarf is a very real and obvious symbol of faith and you know the way way to make Muslim women more marginalised and isolated away from the rest of society is to ban the hijab as then you know Muslim women wearing the hijab aren't able to participate with the rest of society so it you know for, for those people that are trying to liberate uh, Muslim women it, it's kind of going to do the exact opposite there um, but the problem also is that Muslim countries are a poor example of true Islamic teachings and power and politics have hijacked Islam and misinterpreted, you know, for patriarchal gains and of controlling women en masse, um, as it says in the Holy Quran, and say to the believing women that they restrain their eyes and guard their private parts and that they display not their beauty and embellishment except that is which apparent thereof, and that they draw their head covers over their bosoms. But the word here is say to them, it doesn't say force them to. So, you know, it's it's fine because the justification that countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia will use is that, well, it says in the Quran that you have to, but actually it says in the Quran, say to the women. So it's kind of giving the women a choice that they should do this, but at the end of the day, they have to make the decision in order to do it or not. Yeah, absolutely. I think this idea that, you know, enforcing and, and codifying within law, within a certain state or within a certain country what you can and can't wear is extremely, of course, problematic. And it, it's restrictive for those who want to freely practice parts of their faith, which they, they find important. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> with regards to Iran, you know, we see the enforcing of law, which has some detrimental, of course, impacts on what we can see is the, the wave of, of protests that are happening over there. Mm-hmm. Um but it's it's akin to what is happening in in France as well. It's part of the same issue, which is the idea that the state and the government are trying to enforce certain rules and regulations about what women can and can't wear and how women dress. And it is it's causing a lot of issues, to say the least. I mean, I think also we need to look a little bit at the history of Iran in terms of you know women and, and women's clothing. Um, and it's considered by some people that it was the Shah's accomplishment. Obviously, we wouldn't see it like that, that he unveiled the women. And again, this was something put upon the women by the Shah. And it was not something that was chosen by the women. And again, women were not given a voice or a choice. And in 1929, the Shah issued a law forcing Iranians to wear more Western clothing, which was then followed by another law in 1935 requiring European hats. And the Shah then took the law one step further in 1936, banning women from wearing, wearing the jadr, which is um, uh, a big um, cloth that the, that, the, that the women in Iran would wear, which covered their, their head and their bodies. Um, and now the Iranian authorities are forcing women to wear the hijab. And, and it's not clear why these authorities and often men forcing the women to dress the way they want them to. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, not giving the women a choice um, and their own free will to, to make the decision that they want to wear. And I think, you know, it's an important point that obviously many of us, Muslim women and non-Muslim women, men and women, actually, have been watching the situation in Iran. Um, But as we were going through this conversation, I was reflecting on these women in Iran who are protesting, they're presented as one homogenous group in the main. And that actually, if you asked people not in Iran or not familiar with the situation to name some of the women or some some well-known Iranian women, 
I think most people would struggle to name five. So even at this point of protest and this point of obviously change in the country, there's a kind of a lack of an identity. And I guess that's part of what we're saying is that even when you're labelled as a group of women, you're still kind of almost faceless, almost uh, nameless. So we obviously know about the tragic death of uh, Masamini. She, her name is known. But because what happened to her was so extreme and so tragic, that's why her name is is known. Um, but aside from that, I think there kind of are, there is a, a side that we should probably know a bit more about the women. They shouldn't be nameless. They should be should be known. But, but if we just... In a country hmm. that is going to come down so harshly on those women that put themselves forward, it's very hard for them to do that. Absolutely. It, it takes a lot of strength and courage to... To, to put yourself forward in that way um but also i think it's also perhaps just an, an unfamiliarity um with us who are not iranian not living in iran being mm. in the west we're, we're not very familiar with many people in in iran as such i think in general yeah. but if we just shift our attention as we're talking about to that current situation in iran it's obviously still ongoing there are still things that are happening and and it's a very fluid situation so obviously we can only speak to what's what's known at this, this time of recording but um there are a particular set of circumstances as you just alluded to shazia that are in that country and the current islamic republic this regime has been controlling the country for over 40 years which is quite a long time and recently, we've seen this widespread protest, such as cutting the hair, setting things alight. Um, and many more people are now talking about the situation in that country. Although it's been that way for 40 years, a lot of people in the world are talking about it now. So how effective is these strategies that are being used? Do you think it's likely that these strategies will produce change, that they'll end the marginalization? What do you think are some of the factors that might influence the outcome? I mean, I think there are many different ways in which regime change can occur. Um, and we've seen examples of these, you know, uh, historically. Um, and there has to be kind of, it has to be the right time for that particular country um, for things to be able to, to develop. Um, and, you know, examples of that are the US civil rights movement, which used nonviolent mass protests and civil disobedience. And at the culmination of that, there was the legal strategy pursued by the African-Americans and finally, in 1954, the Supreme Court struck down many of the laws that had allowed racial segregation and discrimination to be legal um, in the United States as unconstitutional. So, but that took quite a long period of change, and um, there, you know, it took quite some time for for that to happen. Um, in Russia, if we take the example of how communism came about, and it was the people were fed up of the power of the Tsar and the rich, and this led to widespread anger and the way the general people were living compared to the rich. And this led to the taking over of the government by means of force. Um, and, you know, these were things which, again, with the with the czar, it was kind of over a long period of time where they felt that their voices, people's voices, general people's voices were not being heard in the same way as that, that happened in America. Um, so it's, you know, it's different, it's different things which are suitable for different countries at that particular time, which will, um, you know, facilitate a change in that country or that regime. I think one common thing that threads throughout many of these regime changes is the fact that, you know, a lot of this short term anger and frustration, you know, uh, by a people towards their, their government or their or the nation or those in power at that time, it makes a lot of noise. And now, of course, in the in the world of social media, it creates quite a ripple effect that goes all over the world. And you have many you know, celebrities speaking out on um, what's going on in Iran at the moment. But when we look to, you know, what's actually going to happen in terms of creating change and actually we have the awareness, perhaps our awareness is heightened so much now. We live in a globalised world now where we know quite a lot more than we did before about things that, that, happen, that are going on currently in the world. But in terms of actually making a change, for, for that country and for, for peace long term, I'm not so sure personally, you know, whether that, that anger and frustration um, makes a huge impact in the long term. I mean, one example is, you know, the Taliban in Afghanistan for, for an unsuccessful change, really. And we know the history behind it in that 
in late 2001, the United States and its allies invaded Afghanistan. They toppled the Taliban government at the time. And, you know, however, and they were in power for all that time. But the whole time that the US and the allies were in Afghanistan, there were still vast areas of the country where the Taliban was still in power and fighting against the Afghan authorities and the allied forces. And then we saw in August 2021, that as soon as the Americans left, the Taliban took over again. Um, you know, it's very it's very difficult for an outside country or countries to instigate a regime change in Afghanistan or in any country. And despite all their efforts, the Taliban took over immediately after they left. So it, it feels for, for for that country that actually, you know, the, the, the 20 years or so that the Taliban, that the uh, Americans were there actually didn't make a significant change in the country. And, and yeah, I think that's what shows that the change has to come from within the country, within its own people. It, it can't be enforced by a, by another country. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many examples of that, of that external intervention um, or, you know, foreign intervention in terms of global conflicts and uprisings and things that happen. But when we look to, um, you, you gave the example of perhaps it would be more successful if, if you know, people from their the, the nation itself or the country itself, um, you know, take take and use their voices um, with the, the, those who are in power. And one such example of this is the Arab Spring, which happened in the early 2010s. Um, and that caused a ripple effect throughout the whole of the Arab world, North Africa, Tunisia, uh, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, just to name a couple of countries. Um, but it very much had this this ripple effect. Many of the rulers um, of those countries became deposed from office or were removed from office. Um, some through, you know, quite violent military coups, others through mass demonstrations by the public that were going on at that time. Um, and I remember it. Um, I remember it. It was even though it was, you know, 10 years ago, it was it was chaos all over the news. It was it was chaos. And it was sparked again by this underlying frustration of the people and if uh with the governance feeling that you know the mass pu public on mass were frustrated essentially and we can see some of the effects of this even today um and over 10 years later with you know we have the Syrian refugee crisis which is still ongoing and of course you know the crisis in Yemen too so Perhaps who's to say that even, you know, raising your voice from within your own country, um, that that can also have an effect, um, a, a negative effect in, in some of these cases on, on the country itself, depending on which way governance goes and who has the power in, in that country at that time. I mean, I think we could speak endlessly about the different types of regime change. I mean, we, we spoke when we were sort of discussing the preparation of this program about things such as um, social movements like the civil rights movements in America, where they maybe had civil disobedience or where you had Gandhi and the movement that Gandhi was leading for those marginalized people who feel unhappy with their situation. There are many routes for them to go through to, to make the change that they long to see. And if we do look at the situation in Iran, which as we said, is, is changing daily, we can see, as you said, that there are many um, factors that have mixed, mixed together to create these circumstances. But one thing is of no doubt to anybody who's been watching the situation is that there is huge international support for the women of the country. As you mentioned, Melissa, celebrities, political leaders, you know, from all over the globe, they've spoken or they've tweeted to signal their, their position. And Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, uh, was asked if he discussed the protest with his Iranian counterparts. And he said, I did, I did, I did. We had a discussion on that for sure. And I made very clear that we are supportive of human rights and especially the women's rights. So we had a discussion. Um, do you think that international support is important if you want to bring about change? Can it, it, is it something that can't be just done internally? I mean, I think it depends on, on the country and how much other countries have an influence on them. I mean, you know, if you take Iran for the, as an example, there have been a number of sanctions against Iran imposed by a number of countries, including the UK, countries in the EU and the USA and other international entities. And Iran was the most sanctioned country in the world until it was surpassed by Russia following the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. 
I mean, these don't seem to have made any difference to Iran and, and sanctions in various forms have been imposed in Iran since 1979. I mean, UK sanctions have been placed on senior Iranian security and political figures and the so-called morality um, police recently following the death of Massa Amini in custody. And the Foreign Office summoned Iran's most senior diplomat in the UK, Mehdi Hussein Mateen, over the country's crackdown on protests. And as you said, you know, um, President Macron had spoken to his counterpart in Iran um, and, and had discussions, but it doesn't seem like Iran is willing to listen to um, the international community or to anyone else because they believe that it's, um, you know, God who has said that these things should be in place and therefore they believe that they are doing God's work. So it's very hard to change that because they will be prepared to fight against the rest of the whole world if they believe they are doing what's right. And that's the problem here, I think. Yes, and, and the problem in other 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 conflict situations as well, where, as you mentioned, Russia has been more heavily sanctioned, uh, but they haven't changed their course. So perhaps not unusual. Mm. You're, lis- you're listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. Um, we'll take a short break. So please do join us again afterwards where we'll continue our discussions on ways to find peace. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. You're listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. And today we're discussing how marginalized groups can improve or change their situation in order to achieve to achieve a more lasting form of peace. And, you know, this could be social peace, political peace or indeed inner peace. Um, you know, we've discussed specifically Muslim women and how and why they can be marginalised uh, by modern societies, I would say. You know, we're not talking about the teachings of Islam, we're talking about um, modern societies. And we've also discussed how those same people can um, create change. But being realistic, we know that change is is not easy and it's often slow. So how when we have that dissatisfaction or when we feel that our voice is unheard not just muslim women but any marginalized person how do we when we're in that position create inner peace is protest always the way is there a right way and a wrong way to protest what are the other methods so i think in my opinion violence and vandalism when of course you know taken to the many extremes that they can be taken even in the name of freedom, even in the name of a good cause, it can't be said to affect true, effective change for peace. And I think, you know, violence and vandalism, it usually hits the most vulnerable and it targets the everyday person, you know, everyday local businesses and things that you see that get set alight. It, it affects the everyday person rather than perhaps those in power in the way that people would want who are protesting. So... I think what has to be taken seriously is the views and the sentiments of the nation. You know, a people need to be heard, um, especially if you are ruling over or governing over that, that place. And I think one parallel I can think of in terms of, you know, if, is there a right way or a wrong way, you asked, um, is peaceful, organised protests, you know, no vandalism, no, no violence. Um, I think in the few instances where, you know, individuals are, encouraged to um destroy property and things i don't i don't think that's personally very effective and if if we look to islamic guidance for example if you know your religious freedoms are not given to you in the place where you reside and you know you've made your voice heard to the authorities in in an appropriate manner in a peaceful manner um via democratic processes if they're they're in place in 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 that place where you reside then as a last resort, the, the Holy Quran actually encourages a person to emigrate from that place if it in, is indeed possible. So, you know, of course, nowadays, it's not always possible for that that to be the case, you know, due to some immigration laws tightening or people trying to leave war zones, which, you know, that's that's a very that's extreme difficulty that people are going through. And then in those cases, you know, people of faith and, and, and Muslims turn to prayer as as a tool to affect change. And when we're talking about inner peace here, and I think this is where Muslims in particular, they're encouraged to sort of channel their, their deepest, darkest emotions and their frustrations. It's it's often a place where you can turn to your, your, your prayer mat, to a God that hears and listens. I mean, there's a quote in the Holy Quran which says, 
seek help with patience and prayer. And this is this is a quite a running theme throughout the Holy Quran because there there are many situations where this is perhaps the only thing a person can do is to pray in any given situation. And I think this evokes, you know, hope and optimism um, in the hearts of, of, of a believer um, when we're, again, talking about that inner peace. And it allows those frustrations sort of not to manifest into criminal activities and to also spread that into dissent and, and chaos amongst those who you're around as well. And we can see often that where people do have violent protests or even peaceful protests, but they can turn violent either by the protesters themselves or the oppressors. Um, and the message of the protest is then lost and all people can see is the violence or the aftermath of the violence. And people will forget that message and they'll focus on the way the protests are being done. And that won't affect change at all. Um, further, sometimes when there are protests, both sides become entrenched in their views. And then, of course, you know, nothing can change then. Given the tumultuous state of the Muslim world today, you might be surprised to learn that Muslim scripture prohibits harmful rebellion or protest. In fact, the Holy Quran, the Muslim um, a holy book, instructs Muslims to obey those in authority among you. And that's from chapter 4, verse 60. Additionally, not a single prophet mentioned in the Holy Quran incited their followers to protest against the state. Even Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, prohibited government rebellion. And he once said, whoever disapproves of an unjust measure taken by the ruler should be patient. And that's from the Hadith, the uh, Sahih Bukhari. And on another occasion, he said, you will see injustice, you'll witness your rights suppressed and see others given preference over you. And when his followers were asked how they should respond to that injustice, the prophet replied, give your leaders their rights and then ask God for yours. And that's so interesting, isn't it? That, you know, when you're when the people are not given your rights, then actually you're not going to be able to take them and you shouldn't try and take them forcefully. But instead, you go to God and you pray before God. Um, and as Melissa said, you, you you pour out your emotions to God um, and and pray with with kind of intense intensity. Um, and that's the way to, to affect that change. I mean, I definitely think that um, when we were discussing this and reflecting over it, we said that, you know, it, it, it takes um, a strong personality to to bring about change like some of the people that we mentioned before Gandhi or the holy prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him or the prophets previously they were unique personalities amongst their people and their personality had a way to forge through this path to peace without violence and without aggression but it takes a very enigmatic personality to make that happen it, it's it's not something necessarily that um comes along very often um, more often than not we do see that on the street protest that doesn't really lead to lasting change unfortunately so it seems to me that the real issue here is is justice or the lack of justice um which creates inequality and that leads to marginalization um <clears throat> as you were speaking Shazia, i was thinking of the protests about the killing of George Floyd in the mm -hmm. US and the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, that was a huge groundswell of anger and frustration, um, similar to what we're seeing in, in, in Iran. And it led to people becoming much more aware of the injustice. Mm -hmm. But the, the actual work to fix the injustice is a much longer term thing. And, and so, at, at that hmm. time, people were looking at the violence or the you know the looting or, or yeah. the protests yeah. not For the sure. ideals behind the protests yeah that's right yeah so it it takes a lot to make that change um you know so we do know we've said that you know it takes a lot to build justice and justice seems elusive in many societies that we look at around the world but islam does give us that guidance about how to live a peaceful life and how to build a just and peaceful society so According to Islam, what are the key features of a, of a just society? Yeah, so His Holiness, Mirza Musrur Ahmed, who is the head of the Afghan Muslim community, has spoken extensively on this in various speeches and addresses that he has given. And in one particular instance, he said that the, the system of governance was underpinned entirely by an impartial system of law and order and justice 
where all people uh, were equal under the law of the land. And this, he was talking here on what is an Islamic ideal society. And he goes on to say that the holy prophets of Islam, peace be upon him, established an impartial judiciary for dispute resolution. And he made it clear that there would not be one law for the rich and powerful and another for the poor and weak. Rather, in what was a revolutionary concept, all people were treated equally under, equally according to the law of the land. Um, so that's the end of that quote. And I think that really, that's that's so relevant even, you know, today as it, as it was in the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, because you still you still see these these discrepancies in in society now, you know, between the rich and the powerful and those who are perhaps poor and perhaps less privileged. So we see that this lack of justice is is pervasive, ever, ever, ever present in society. And there's a there's a charter of Medina, which was the um, the rules by which um, the, the terms by which people were going to live and. Um, His Holiness also said, according to the terms of the Charter of Medina, the divergent groups pledged to live peaceful, peacefully, to fulfil the rights of one another and to foster a spirit of mutual sympathy, tolerance and cooperation. And the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be on him, was elected as head of state. And under his leadership, the covenant proved to be a magnificent charter of human rights and governance and ensured peace between the, the different communities. And that was um, a quote by His Holiness. Um, at a speech delivered to to UNESCO, I mean, you know, another another way is that the responsibility of neighbours, and this is in Islam, is seen as so important. Um, and in the Holy Quran, it says, "And worship Allah and assort no and associate naught with Him, and show kindness to parents and to kindred and orphans and the needy and the neighbour that is a kinsman and the neighbour that is a stranger, um, and the companion by your side and the wayfarer and those whom your right hand possess. Surely Allah love not the arrogant and the boastful." So the neighbour is given, you know, same rights as as parents and kindred and orphans. So a neighbour can be your actual physical neighbour, um, um, you know, living next to you. But neighbour can be much wider than that. It could be people in your neighbourhood, people in your country. And then obviously countries are neighbours to each other. So it, it shows the, the importance of countries um, acting justly to each other. Absolutely. I think this this idea of everyone you know it's not just an individual certain nation that needs you know to have to have peace but it's everyone has this need to feel heard and everyone needs to be treated with that that equity according to what what their needs are and when we're talking about justice for women as this program is about it it involves keeping women safe um as of course you know especially with recent events that's that's an epidemic in itself um, as well as promoting access to fair and high quality education um, as well, especially for women and girls. So this this access to having equal opportunities and having, you know, fair execution of these opportunities is just as important. Um, you know, many of the most peaceful societies have an emphasis, if we can say that, peaceful societies, but have an emphasis on this good quality health care and education and the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has continually at every opportunity when addressing girls and women in particular has encouraged them to to go into professions and, and fields of becoming a doctor becoming a teacher as perhaps some of the core professions to venture into you know as well as climate and environmental roles and human rights law so um this this was said in in an address in Manchester when addressing the the young girls and young ladies um during covid so again i think what's what's really important here is the idea that you know of equity and justice needs to be across the board it's not one rule for one group and one rule for another absolutely and i think that's something which islam inculcates in its very core as you mentioned the charter of medina very disparate groups with very disparate beliefs living peacefully and having justice afforded to them. Uh, you know, and uh, we've talked very generally about societies as a whole or groups of people as a whole who might be protesting. So we've talked in very sort of uh, macro level uh, terms about what's ha- what might happen if you feel that sense of injustice or if you feel marginalised. But, you know, I can remember 
as a child, my mother refusing to buy South African fruit. So when we were in the supermarket, she would check all the fruit to check its origin because she would not uh, buy something that had been had come from South Africa at that time when the boycott was being done which Nelson Mandela went on to say that the boycott, the economic boycott of people doing things like that really made a difference to the South African government and, and did help to bring down apartheid. So, you know, I didn't really understand the thought behind it as a child. I just thought it was, you know, I didn't really understand why my mother was checking where the fruit came from. But I think it's a really good example of how individuals can make choices that that lead towards peace for others or that lead towards supporting those marginalized groups. So I've mentioned, you know, a perhaps economic boycott, which some people choose to do. But what other types of way can we as individuals create justice in our own lives that then ripples out to society? Yeah, I think we're we're very fortunate, of course, here in the UK that there there are many opportunities available to us in terms of what we can do for for others or tackling injustice. One of which is perhaps an obvious one, but social media, you know, creating that awareness amongst our own circles, um, you know, via different social media platforms, informing ourselves. I think that's that's perhaps education, you know, starts at home, educating those around us and our family members and our, our circles, but also, you know, the wider communities as well. Um, another one would be, you know, using democratic processes, you know, engaging with your local MP, um, getting in touch with local councillors and things like that and raising awareness for for issues of injustice, um, whether they be here domestically in the UK or internationally as well. And I think perhaps it's it's a simple one, but just helping those who are around you who are in need because injustice, you know, we don't need to think of injustice as something being, you know, in a far and distant place. You know, we could have a next door neighbour who's going through something and without having that conversation or without, you know, engaging in that relationship and getting to know those around us and those who live close to us. And as you were talking um, about before, Shazia, neighbours doesn't mean, you know, those who just live next door to you. It could be a colleague at work, for example, or if you're a student, somebody who's in the same class as you. So just making sure and being aware and having that empathy for others and offering your services for whatever you can do. Um, and of course, perhaps maybe the most obvious one is is giving to charity as well. When we're talking about injustices where we can contribute financially, um, one such charity is Humanity First, which is the registered charity organisation which directly addresses, you know, this balance in war zones in, in areas of the world, which, you know, there is ongoing war. And it also promoting education and access to proper health care in some of the most developing countries worldwide. So giving time to educate ourselves of these injustices and also being able to contribute um, personally, I think it, it gives a person a sense of personal satisfaction, um, which, again, contributes to tackling this injustice. I think that, you know, um, all those things that you said, are, you know, are things that, that will facilitate change. But I think education is also a key area to, to make changes. And, and that means religious and secular education. Um, you know, the re religious education is so important as women and especially Muslim women need to know their rights given to us by Islam. These are rights that no man gave us and no man should be able to take away. And the problem is, is that if women are not aware of their rights. It's so easy for these rights to be taken away by the men who tell her she has no rights. However, if she can show examples in the Holy Quran and in the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, she can show that she has these rights. And, and as I said, no man can take them away. Um, in this regard, the Holy Quran has laid down a principle of great wisdom and value in chapter three, verse 65, where it says, come to a word equal between us and you. Here, the Holy Quran has laid down a golden principle in the cause of peace, whereby it states that people should focus on doing things that unite them. In terms of the major religions, the unifying figure is God Almighty himself. But this doesn't mean that religious person can have nothing in common with a non-religious person. Thus, the Holy Quran has taught us how to build a peaceful multicultural society where people of all faiths and beliefs are able to live side by side. And the key ingredients are mutual respect and tolerance. And accordingly, at another place, the Holy Quran has instructed that Muslims should not speak against the idols or deities of others, because in reaction, 
those people would curse Allah and a cycle of perpetual grievance would result. This was, um, his holiness said in the peace conference in 2017. I mean, I think this is, is really important because, you know, when we see in the world today, you know, the right to freedom of expression or freedom of speech. Um, but again, this is exactly what, what, what the Holy Quran said is that don't use those things that are going to hurt other people because they will then say things that will hurt you. And then that cycle is just continuously going on. I agree. And I think it's, um, you know, when I look back and I reflect and I see that that early Islamic society in Medina and the principles of Islam, where people live together without marginalization and in a state of peace, um, you know, it shows that these are the foundations that Islam has put, but the, the overarching principles. And it also gives day to day advice as to how to do it. So it says, you know, live together in tolerance. This is part of Islamic teaching. But there's also the the practical what does that look like well get, if somebody's sick go and visit them if somebody is hungry give them some food so islam is this wonderful all-encompassing religion that has these overarching principles as well as these um practicalities of how to do things and you know finally i wanted to end uh, very briefly on a positive note you know by saying we're talking about women and and the marginalization of women so who are the women that have inspired you, the women who have tackled injustice, who've spoken up for the marginalised and who've promoted to peace? So who comes to your mind when, when you hear that question? I think for me, there's there's a few that definitely spring to mind. Um, so there are some that directly influence my life. So, of course, both my own mother and mother-in-law have both been invaluable to me. Um, my mother has always been an example of someone who's there for everyone. Um, in an in a highly individualistic world, to be honest, that we live in now, where everyone seems to be too busy for one another, um, this is something that I, you know, highly value, and I know that she's always there, not just for us as you know family members, but her wider circle of anyone who she comes into contact with. So, for me, that's that's really admirable quality that I always see in her, and she's an embodiment of that love for others as you would want for yourself. Um, and of course, my mother-in-law, too, has always sort of led by that example as well. And in the local community, as well as, you know, her family, she's definitely someone who prioritises, you know, the living, but also the sharing of the message of love for all and hatred for none, which is the motto of the Anthony Muslim community. So both two very instrumental women in my life um, um, perhaps on a, on a on a wider scale. Aside from that, there's, there is the wife of the second caliph of the promised Messiah, who was the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And she was instrumental to setting up the women's auxiliary of the community in 1922, for which this year is the centenary year. So, um, you know, this is, this is something that's such a huge part of my life as, as a member of, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, and, you know, we're currently holding many events in in our local communities in the UK and worldwide, talking about how how this institution of um, the women's auxiliary has been building bridges amongst women for a hundred years now, and and will continue to do so. Yes, I think you know the Legendary Mile, the auxiliary um, association or organisation of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is instrumental in in the way that we live our lives today, because so much importance was given is given to education in that um you know religious knowledge and um and secular knowledge and it was such a big thing that um the second caliph set up and it was so forward thinking um and that was was with assistance from his wife who, who initially had this idea that um you know women should also be taught and, and why are you leaving the women out so again she was um very much instrumental in in, in avoiding the marginalization of women um i would like well, I, I think shazi i'd also sorry i'd also before, I'd just jump in there and say that when I read the constitution of Lajna Myla, I'm going to paraphrase, part, part of it says that the, the reason for founding this organization was because women are best placed to be advised by other women and to know what is best for them. And I thought, you know, 100 years ago, that's extremely um, empowering principle on which to found a ladies organization that women are best placed to be able to cater for their own needs and to be able to um, know what they are and, and meet them for each other. And the Lajna does a huge emphasis on sharing knowledge and between members. 
And uh, it reminds me of the quote of the fifth uh, Khalifa of our community, the current head, who said that women um, do better outside the shade of men. And that's a very empowering uh, thing to do. So we know definitely within our community, women are certainly not marginalised. And and that's and that that um, those examples really should be given to both Iran and France to say that women should be able to to have autonomy to choose and to advise each other, but not have the Absolutely. advice kind of put on them by men. Um, yep. But I, I would give the example of uh, my paternal grandmother, who was married at the age of fourteen and a widow at twenty five with five children, ranging from forty days to eight years old. And she had five brothers who got together and said they would each take one of her children, and she could marry again. And she said she told her brothers that she was sure that her brothers would care for her children um, as a father would. But, you know, some weren't married yet and she wasn't sure how the, how her sister-in-laws would care for the children. So she said, you know, somebody that had left school at 12, um, barely had much of an education, said that she was going to go back to a school, become a teacher. And so she would be able to provide and look after her children, which she did with the help of Allah. And she ended up being a head teacher and educating all her children, both in religiously and worldly matters, too. Um, and this is somebody that gave great emphasis to to to, to women um, and to the education of women. And the other example I would give is my mother, who came to the UK as a young woman with no no kind of her own family to support her, managed to raise seven, four children. And her lesson to all of us was always, you know, run after the spiritual, and the worldly things will come to you. But also, very very, um, you know, for her, very very important was the education, particularly of her of her daughters. Um, so that, you know, we would be able to to stand on our own two feet if we needed to do so. Um, and she put great emphasis, she puts great emphasis on, on prayers and everything that we do. Well, thank you. And I think, you know, what's surprising to me is when I asked you that question is, you know, often what might come to mind would be, you know, very famous world leaders like, or, you know, Queen Elizabeth I or Queen Elizabeth II or, you know, perhaps even... Um, Rosa Parks for her civil rights movement but the fact that you've mentioned people that are close to you in your daily life and are you know not not people widely known in the world I think that's just proves what Islam says that building peace starts from the home and that women are the uh, the, the uh, building blocks of peace but within the home the woman can have this fundamental role in building a peaceful society that's oftentimes overlooked and that view as the woman being the, the provider of peace and security and building that in her children, that view itself is often marginalised. Um, so thank you, ladies, once again for joining me today and sharing in this conversation. Um, and it just remains for me to say that thank you to our listeners for tuning in and please do join us next time for more discussion on Pathway to Peace. You can always continue the conversation on Twitter over at hashtag BOIPeace. Uh, so I hope you will tune in again. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you.